Hi, Nephew community. Welcome to Voices from the Community, a Nephew podcast series featuring guests ranging from patients to providers representing various backgrounds and expertise. They will share their experience, perspectives, and expertise in addressing various topics across the healthcare spectrum and how it relates to kidney care. Nephew hosts uh, Dr. Deborah Hain, a PhD preparatorial professor and a DNP program director at Florida Atlantic University's Christine Elin College of Nursing. Uh, relying on her extensive clinical and research expertise, she will discuss the implications, challenges, and concerns faced by kidney disease patients experiencing housing insecurity. I am Diego Gomez, a clinical science liaison with Otsuka Pharmaceutical Development and Commercialization, and I would like to welcome uh, Dr. Deborah Hain. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me about this and to, the ability to discuss this very important topic. Thank you. Yeah, we are very happy to have you here. So to start our discussion in housing insecurity, I'd like to uh, initiate with the first question. What defines housing insecurity and how is that associated with clinical prognostic and disease progression in patients that have chronic kidney disease? First, uh, housing insecurity, or sometimes called instability, encompasses a number of challenges, such as having to pay rent, overcrowding, moving frequently, or spending the majority of the household income on housing, as well as living in substandard or poor quality housing, or living in an unsafe neighborhood. These experiences may negatively affect physical health and make it harder for people to access um, their the healthcare. Housing cost burden, which is one of the things people experience, is defined by the percentage of households, the household's gross monthly income that is spent on housing. Households are considered burdened if they spend more than 30% of their income on housing, and then severely cost burdened if they spend more than 50% of their income on housing. Cost burdened households have little left over each month to spend on necessities such as food, clothing, utilities, and health care. And Black and Hispanic households are almost twice as likely as white households to have this burden. In 2019, about 37.1 million households, including renters and owners, were cost burdened. And of this, seven, of this population, 17.6 million households were severely cost burdened. And about 85 I mean, almost 84%, sorry, of households earning, earned less than $15,000 a year and were considered cost burdened. People are going to pay for their rent or mortgage first. And so if there's not enough money to pay for medication or other health care needs, they are more likely not to do this. Housing quality is something that receives less attention as a measure of housing insecurity than, than the affordability of housing. In part, this is due to the perception that it is less common and less urgent. And the primary measure of housing quality is how HUD's definition of moderate to severely inadequate, how inadequate housing um, that they used in what they call the worst case needs study. And housing is considered severely inadequate if there's less a lack of certain basic features like hot and cold water, a flushing toilet. We need a better method of measuring these things because we're not even quite sure how many people have this um, have poor housing quality. 
People are unlikely to notify healthcare providers of their poor quality of housing because of they're just trying to live day to day and they may not think of it as a problem if they're just living and they also may be embarrassed or feel discriminated against if they tell somebody. Another issue is overcrowding and that's considered uh, a moderate housing problem and not the worst type of housing problem, but we see this and in many communities, and HUD defines overcrowding housing as any unit with more people than rooms, specifically bedrooms and living rooms. An alternative of measuring, uh, measuring overcrowding includes more than two people for every bedroom in a housing unit, or more than 1.5 people per room, or maybe even less than 165 square feet of housing per person. There also are forced moves or things like eviction, which is a, a formal eviction is the clearest example of forced moves. Evictions are a legal process. However, there's a little data to know what the frequency is and how this relates to health. So they may have to go because they, have, they may have to be evicted because they can't pay their rent, because they've had a decrease in income or an increase in other expenses, or even that they've had a dispute with a landlord, or possibly their safety concerns and their buildings being condemned. Housing can be considered a critical determinant of health. The housing shortage has affected people who have incomes below or at the federal poverty level and minority populations due to the racist housing policies that we've seen in, and lending practice that we've seen in the past. This is called redlining. And redlining was where people of color were not given the opportunity to purchase houses in more affluent white neighborhoods. And this is a form of structural racism, which has been very prevalent in many communities across our nation. Kidney disease disproportionately affects the same populations. Black people and individuals living in areas where there, uh, where more than one in five households have incomes below the federal poverty level are 25% more likely to experience kidney failure compared to white people or those, not, those not, that are not living in these low resource neighborhoods. At this time, we don't know the exact prevalence of unstable or insecure housing among people with kidney disease, but housing has become an important issue that really does demand attention from the kidney community. People experiencing housing insecurity are three times more likely to develop albuminuria, 60% more likely to postpone medical needed medical care, and less likely to achieve kidney preventative measures when they have diabetes or hypertension, the most common risk factors for kidney disease. Housing insecurity or instability contributes to worse outcomes that can result in promotion of progression to kidney failure and increase the barriers to health, healthy behaviors and seeking medical care. People with CKD who are homeless are 30% more likely to develop end-stage kidney disease or die compared to those with CKD who live in stable housing. Those with end-stage kidney disease have increased vulnerability because of increased financial resource strains due to inability to work sometimes, as well as pay the increased housing costs. Among veterans, there's a risk, the risk factors are substance use disorder, mental illness, income-related factors, social isolation, adverse childhood experiences, and past incarcerations. These factors can also contribute to homelessness in other populations as well. Um, people experiencing homelessness have a higher risk of suicide, unintentional injuries, infectious disease, mental health problems, and substance misuse and abuse. 
During the pandemic crisis, people experienced lost wages and increased unemployment to pay their rent and bills. This has been compounded by an increase in housing costs, which we know is occurring now, and fewer homes and apartments that are on the market, which has made it difficult for many to find affordable housing. Patients who experience unstable housing are, are, more like, are really not likely to do home dialysis. So that also affects their, their health risk and their mortality quality of life. Well, that's, thank you so much for your insights. Uh, indeed, those numbers are impressive and the historical content behind affecting the healthcare and the, and the nuances that you pointed out make it really important that providers uh, are aware of this. Uh, can you share your experiences on working with this population and what are some of the key challenges that you have seen in your clinical practice? So I'm gonna present um, patient situations and later the, it will provide recommendations to address these. I'm not using the patient's real name. So just so you know that these, I'm just using a first name and that is not the patient's. But I've had over 30 years in nephrology. So I have many, many stories and anybody who knows me knows that I live through my stories because I think they really bring it home. So I'll start with the first one, which is about house. Is housing insecurity can mean living in a home with too many people which is what happened during the pandemic with many of our patients. And in one particular dialysis center located in Southeast Florida, Karen, an African-American grandmother was receiving dialysis. She was experiencing overcrowding in her home. She lived with her daughter and her family and cared for the grandchildren where the parents worked. Her daughter and husband got COVID, which led to her getting COVID. And we know that infectious disease risk can increase when you're living in overcrowding conditions and in close quarters. Unfortunately, she didn't survive. And it was devastating to the dialysis team because she was just a wonderful person and it was very sad for them. But fortunately, her family members did. But really sadly, not only did they lose the patriarch of the family, they lost the person who helped with the grandchildren. So now they were affected in many ways. They lost their loved one, which is the, you know, the most important. But they also clearly, it's affected their ability to work and their lives. They had to find somebody else. And then the grandchildren don't have their grandmother. So it's, it's a very sad situation. A lack of permanent address can, may result in discontinuation of a person's benefits or insurance. And William was a 21-year-old white male with end-stage kidney disease receiving dialysis. He was hospitalized for a long period of time, so he lost his benefits. So when we went to discharge him home from the hospital, he had no place to go. And the one thing they wanted to do is send him to a rehab because we couldn't keep him in the hospital any longer. And I knew if he went there, he was already depressed, that this would only make his depression worse. And, and he had a right to go back to his home. He was disabled before he started dialysis. And now he had to find a, a place to live so he could continue his, his lifestyle. I, you know, it's a very sad situation when you see this. It's very frustrating for the healthcare provider too, because you finally get someone stable enough to leave the hospital. And then what do you do? They don't have their benefits. He doesn't didn't have the money to pay his rent. People receiving dialysis and experiencing unstable housing may not be able to follow dietary restrictions. May, a 34-year-old Hispanic female, had limited funds and was cooking for her family. She was not able to make a special meal for herself, and so she didn't always eat the best foods for someone that was on dialysis. She had phosphorus out of control, but she didn't have the money or the ability to make meals different for herself from her family. 
And when we consider the person who's homeless, where do they store their medications? How about transportation? At this time, there's a lack of a representative sample of people experiencing homelessness with people with kidney disease experiencing homelessness. And even in the homeless population, we don't have a really representative sample. Instead, the national homeless counts are derived from compiling counts done at community level. Um, HUD produces an annual national estimate of homelessness by compiling point-in-time counts, which all communities are required to produce every January. So Sam is a 28-year-old white male who is homeless with no permanent address. He was not taking his binders because he didn't have a place to store. He had difficulty securing regular transportation, and he was missing treatments. The dialysis team was becoming very frustrated, and he was labeled non-adherent. So once we labeled him non-adherent, I didn't because I don't use that term, but once they labeled him non-adherent, he just said, you know, there's nothing I can do, and I'm just going to do the best I can. And he disregarded their comments, and their what they were trying to do was to teach him about taking his binders and doing things that he needed to do to promote health. But he was very frustrated with his current situation, and unfortunately, it wasn't addressed where it should have been in the center. Living in unsafe and economically distressed neighborhoods is another potential form of housing insecurity that can have negative consequences for the well-being of the, our patients, their families, if they have children. Crystal was a 24-year-old African-American female living in an unsafe neighborhood. She had uncontrolled hypertension and often experienced challenges eating a healthy diet. And in many times in these neighborhoods, it's important to point out that they also have food insecurity. So in her neighborhood, the closest place is McDonald's or one of the other fast foods, Burger King, one of those fast food restaurants. And so we're telling them to lower their sodium, and this is what they have in their neighborhood. Some of the grocery stores don't have the healthiest foods for them to eat. So she was not able to access those foods. But one day, I met with her to discuss how we could collaborate as partners in health and really try to promote her health and lower the sodium intake and try to address some of these uh, social determinants of health, and she informed me that her boyfriend had been murdered in front of her house. So you live in an unsafe neighborhood, your boyfriend is murdered, is your first priority going to be low sodium diet, access to these healthy foods? We have to think about that. A person with mental health conditions may experience homelessness. Miguel was a 39-year-old Hispanic male with bipolar 1 disorder who was not taking his medications. We watched him become manic, and we tried to help get help for his mental health condition, and it was also challenging because he wasn't a threat to himself or anyone else, so we couldn't hospitalize him, and he would not take his medications. He did find threat. He did threaten a dialysis staff, so he he was at, he experienced involuntary discharge to another dialysis center. He was transferred to that center and he did not like the center. So he was not going to go to the dialysis center. So he would come to the emergency department on a regular basis to receive his dialysis. And unfortunately, he died at a young age because he wasn't getting adequate care. So these are just some examples for you of things that we've experienced. And I'm sure many people who are listening to this have met, have similar or other examples that we that housing instability or insecurity is major threat to our patients. And we really need to address these issues. Thank you. Indeed, we can see that the challenges posed by insecurity really directly affect the success of clinical care. And they also go beyond the experience that the patient has in the medical office or the dialysis clinic, right? So in that 
in the same lines of talking about the, the role that the providers may have, what would you recommend or what are some tips that you would share with other providers when treating patients that face housing security? Well, first, we want to really consider that housing insecurity is a real, persistent, and growing problem with implications for the individual's health and well-being. And you are absolutely right. Every one of the conditions that I discussed or situations I discussed before affect the dialysis team as well and the providers because we care about our patients and we want the best for them. And so we really have to consider housing insecurity as a potential reason for what is happening with our patients, why they're not able to take their meds, why they're not able to do the things that we're recommending. The 30% cutoff for affordable housing matches what assisted households are required to pay for HUD Section 8 uh, rental assistance programs or public housing and the housing choice voucher. So some patients are eligible for that, that 30% cutoff. The amount, though, does not consider health care costs, food, transportation. So we need to think of those things as well. And once again, patients may make trade-offs between housing and other necessities uh, you know, such as having to face formal eviction or, you know, they don't want to face being evicted or forced to move by their landlord because they can't pay the rent. And this is something we've known in the geriatric community that older adults are more, most often they'll pay, they'll pay their rent or mortgage or what rather than take pay for their medications if that's all they can afford. However, when we're looking at Section 8 housing, it's a, usually a long waiting list. I work in a community where we have uh, I work there, there is Section 8 housing, and there are two geriatric areas housing units, and then there is one uh, family. And people are waiting lists for a long period of time to get in there. So those can be very challenging for, for to get into these low-income housing units. And the one that I go to in Palm Beach County, the it was a oh, it had been there for a long time, and then there was a very very ruthless murder in there, and so they closed it and they have rebuilt it. And right now it's a beautiful place, so it's unusual to see that. I've brought students there, and they're shocked on how beautiful it is. So I'm always proud when I see things like that when people are trying to help others. And in these community where I go, it's predominantly either African American, African Caribbean, or Hispanic populations. What's important is we need to partner with our dialysis teams and our community members to determine the housing needs and possible ways to address this. Social workers are trained to address issues such as housing insecurity. However, if they're not even aware of a patient's situation, how can they intervene? We need to consider how to create a set of questions on housing insecurity for our patients, implement interventions, and measure outcomes to determine the effectiveness of our interventions. Social workers are aware of community programs to address these housing insecurities. We also have the HUD exchange, which can assist in finding local organizations to assist patients. There really is a need to figure out how to target, um, get you know, how we can target uh, interventions and how we can identify housing resources. Uh, available resources right now, some of them include emergency shelters, traditional housing, which provides temporary housing up to 24 months. When William was discharged from the hospital, we were fortunate to find a traditional transitional housing where he lived until he received his benefits and was able to get his apartment again. So we have to think outside the box. Where can we, let's not just send them to a rehab if they don't need it or somewhere he he where he may not be able 
where his depression would have gotten worse and he and uh, I don't know his quality of life would have been poor and may have affected his mortality. We want to pay attention to inter, inter initiatives that are occurring in our country. One is called the Collaborative Initiative to End Chronic Homelessness and HUD VA Supportive Housing Programs, which make funds available to support communities working to integrate housing and treatment services for disabled individuals who have experienced long-term and or repeated homelessness. Stable housing has the potential to increase the use of home dialysis modalities and transplant or transplantation among patients with low resources, low income, and this can lead to improved quality of life and, and a reduced reduction in mortality risk. Programs that ha have supported permanent housing have been used for decades for individuals experiencing chronic homelessness with disabling conditions such as HIV and mental health problems. We really need to think how these can ex be expanded to our population with kidney disease. Other possible interventions could, could we could consider hospitals investing in rental assistance. There's a thing called tiny home communities. I saw one recently. I was like, oh, it's kind of neat. They, they really are nice. There's one in our in a county not too far from me. I was amazed. Uh, a rental assistance in the form of housing vouchers for people who have extremely low income. And maybe we could think of conversion of hotels into transitional housing. How about maybe partnerships between dialysis organization and housing programs to combine a home with home dialysis modalities? I think that would be something that would be beneficial. If a patient, a patient misses dialysis or has labs that are not within normal within the goal, maybe we need to consider developing that once again, that way to evaluate is housing insecurity a contributor and then facilitate that social work uh, for referrals and connection to local resources. But we also wanna be aware that of the consequences to housing insecurity, be aware if our patients have it and avoid labeling our patients as not adherent. Sometimes when they're not able to do the things that we, we, that we recommend or they're missing treatments is because of this insecurity that they may not tell you because of the reasons I said before. It is important also to address where patients can safely access and store their medications, access recommended foods and refrigeration, toilet facilities if they don't have that, and address life-threatening challenges. You know, if they're homeless, they have a risk of uh, temperature extreme, exposure to temperature extremes, and their physical safety may be at risk. More re research is really needed on housing insecurity and homelessness in people with kidney disease. People experiencing housing insecurity often face structural racism, discrimination, social isolation, and demoralization. Many, many people are homeless, have mental health problems. And of course, when you're in an unsafe environment or you're homeless, you have a risk of violence occurring, such as it had with the patient I described before. Awareness of these issues among kidney professionals and the dialysis team can facilitate discussions and promote person-centered care and patient engagement in their health. And it is a team. In geriatrics, you always, my colleague would always say, it takes a village to care for an older population. It's the same thing for dialysis. It takes a team to work together. And our and our the dialysis technicians are the ones that are closest to that patient. They're talking to them every, every time they come in for their treatment. 
And they often would provide information about the patient that I didn't know, or the nurse didn't know, or the physician didn't know, or other members of the team were unaware. So as team members, we need to think about this. Could this possibly be that this person's experiencing housing insecurity? And how can we as a team support this person to get to better, to get housing stability and hopefully better health? We There is a need for policy changes and advocacy within the kindy community. We need to advocate for better housing for our patients and also for mental health uh, care for our patients that have kidney disease. One thing to say I read in an article is to remember that stable housing is a basic right that is tightly connected to health and outcomes in people with kidney disease. So we really need to be aware of this importance of insecure, of stable housing versus in, in uh, secure and unstable housing. Those are very important points to consider, Dr. Haim. It's very, very clear that it need, there needs to be a group work when we, when we approach patient care and also understanding the patient uh, medical and social reality. Very insightful comments. I would like to, to thank you for... Uh, your participation on Voices from Community. I, I'm really happy that you were able to join us today. Oh, thank you. And this is very dear and near to my heart. I've been working with a community that experiences structural racism, and um, it's important to become part of that community and, and be humbled by the community and find out what is most important to them, not us coming in and telling them, this is what we can do for you. Absolutely. Well, I'd like to thank the NEPHEW community, if you want to know more, you can access the website on www.nephew.org. And we are also on social media at NEPHEW community. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm.